You know, every time I give you an exhortation like I did to be responsive in church, I always hear people say to me, well, I'm not going to be hypocritical like charismatics. I'm not going to put on a show. And I say, dude, when you got engaged, were you hypocritical like all the other guys? Did you put on a show like all the other guys? Did you maybe try to convince the woman whose hand you wanted in marriage that you meant it and that it filled you with joy? What hypocrisy. I mean, really. And, and how about when you're, when you're whispering sweet nothings to your wife? Such hypocrisy. You know how many men who are adulterers do that? I mean, come on, guys. Give yourself to God. Stop thinking about what other people are going to think of you. Your wife's sitting next to you, and she knows you were a jerk in the car on the way to church, right? You know? And you say, well, I'm not going to give myself to worship because my wife knows what a hypocrite I am. Listen, there's never anything we've ever done that is not hypocrisy. If God loses. But if he wins, nothing we ever do is not the path of righteousness. And after all, it grows, right? And so it may be little now, and it may be still very small when you're 59 like me, but you focus, you fix your eyes on him, the author and the finisher of our faith, right? So Yeah. All right. I mean, it really is the same thing I said last week, which is, if it's safety we're after, you sure got the wrong pastor. <laughs> you know, fire me and buy a hairpiece. <laughs> okay. Don't worry, I'll tame down now. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. I would do much better in Africa, wouldn't I, Joni? Much better in Africa. I want to go back home. Because there you get two hours to preach. Unless you're Reformed, Baptist, and repressed. All right. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Let's go ahead and stand as we read the word of God. This is the word of God and is eternally true. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now, this is all politically correct so far, but watch what comes next. So we're exalting, right, in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Eh? And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, 
because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, the first statement here is, therefore, having, past participle, having been, and in the book of Acts, it also says those being saved, and so it's past, and it's present, and it's a participle, continued action. Therefore, having been justified by works, having been justified by lighting candles to the saints, having been justified by praying to Mary, having been justified by going to daily mass, having been justified by going to confession, having been justified by buying R.C. Sproul books, having been justified by faith. And faith is opposed to good works. It is opposed. All right? We have been justified by faith. And faith is not good works. God will not tolerate the pride of man. And all good works are is the endless pursuit of pride by sinful man. There is absolutely no way that you can earn the salvation of God. The only way to pull it off is to minimize his holiness and to minimize your sin. And that's what sodomite marriage is all about. It's all about minimizing sin. It's all about giving you a place to stand where there's some small degree of legitimacy even for those who privately are opposed to homosexuality. It's perfectly parsing the place in between the holiness of God and the sin of man. It's like, well, if they're going to do it, how about a covenant relationship in which they do it? And by the way, I don't want to talk about what they do. You understand that. And don't look down on it because that's what you do all the time. I'll look, but I won't touch. That's what a lot of Christian men say about lust. I'll look, but I won't touch. And so the not touching is the moral justification for looking. You see this? And this is what we're always doing. We're always trying to find the sweet spot in between holiness and sin. And so we, we, we say, well, you know something? If I were to just simply fall on my face before Jesus Christ and give up my pride and confess my sin and ask him to wash me, <laughs> You know, that would, that, that would look like, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know how many hypocrites have, and, and <laughs> I ain't going to do it. I ain't going to do it. And so what happens then is that we go on a massive project to justify, I ain't going to do it. And really, the explanation is very simple. The explanation is, I ain't going to do it. And the elaborate schemes we come up with to avoid doing it are mind-boggling. And they take so much more energy. And the only possible way to explain them is the, the humongous pride that we have. You know? And so what we do is we come up with all these schemes 
of works righteousness, all these ways that we can minimize our sinfulness, you know, you, you know, look but don't touch, you know, uh, homosexual marriage, uh, civil unions, you know, uh, successive uh, adultery, serial adultery of divorce with the elders judging us as being permissible and then remarriage and then divorce with the elders judging us permissible, of course, is if any church cares why people get divorced anymore, <laughs> you know, and, and fornication that goes right to the edge And greed that's covered by what the man that doesn't provide for his own is worse than a pagan. <laughs> and we have this massive effort to show that we don't need that thing that I ain't going to do, which is to throw ourselves before the mercy of God and to confess our sin in all its horror and to confess his righteousness in all of its glory. Unconditional surrender. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the gospel. The gospel is nothing in our hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. All right, that's it. That's the gospel. Therefore, therefore, you Christian, therefore, Having been justified by what? Faith. Does faith bring anything in its hand? It doesn't bring anything. Faith is not a work that you can do. Faith is a gift. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, when we unconditionally surrender... God looks at his son, who is high and lifted up, whose blood pours off the cross, and who is a lamb without blemish, and he transfers both the suffering for sin and his perfect righteousness to our account, and he uses faith to do it. Faith doesn't merit it. Faith is the tool that God uses to do it. And all of a sudden, we're in Christ. We have been justified by faith and therefore have peace with God. God doesn't look at our wickedness. He doesn't listen to our excuses. There's this cartoon I saw years ago. I've never forgotten it. It's this little squirrely dude, postmodern, effeminate wuss. And he's under a huge bench in a courtroom. You know, all the wood and up there is the judge in his robes. And he's looking up at the judge and he says, guilty with an explanation, your honor. No, you cannot do that. Guilty, not guilty. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained, verse 2, our introduction by faith into this grace, and then I love that statement, in which we stand. In which we stand when Satan attacks us. In which we stand amidst all the fiery darts. We don't run, we don't cower, we don't hide. We stand in faith. 
And we don't stand in faith as righteous in ourselves. We stand in faith clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Okay? And boy, you talk about slippery. We are so slippery once we have faith in Jesus Christ because then immediately we try to displace it with our own righteousness. So this last week, Nathan Alberson is our ex-cathedra speaker in the church. You know, it takes him so long to get up the nerve to speak that when he does, it's just like, Bleh! So for probably the second time in my life, I got an email from Nathan this last week. And Nathan's email says, Bleh! he says, what's with everybody having a hissy fit about Ben sinning? Tim Bailey sins. Tim Wagner sins. We all sin." Get over it. <laughs> and now Nathan's back in his hobbit hole. And he won't appear for another, what, how long? Ten years, maybe? <laughs> and the minute I read that, I, I noticed the one particular thing he said, which is Tim Bailey's sense. And I really thought that that was disrespectful. And I wondered how he knew that. <laughs> and I wondered if my wife or my daughter Heather was talking to him. It's a joke. But you know, I did just a little bit. You know, right? If it had been you, wouldn't you have, you know, just like... All right. In which we stand, and we don't stand with our own righteousness. We don't stand because we take a look at what happened yesterday and remember whether or not we got up and read the Bible and had devotions. Right? We stand because no man is justified by his works. Not before faith, not after faith, and not at the last judgment. At the last judgment... The book will be opened and it will be read. At the last judgment, every single drop of blood of the innocent will rise up out of the ground. And no man will stand except by Jesus. Tim Wagner and Ann Wagner won't. Chris Connell won't. David Canfield won't. Carol won't. Linda won't. Nobody will. Rita Cuffey won't. Your sweet little cherub-faced baby won't. And your grandmother, who's godly, won't. Your dad won't. We'll stand by Jesus. Mother Teresa won't. And so, listen. Get over it. The path of Christ is a path of humility. And now, by walking by faith, we have given permission to God to do the work of sanctification in our lives, and it's a bloody awful work. And what I mean by that is that it's very, very painful, and it's very humbling, and nobody escapes the humility and the pain except those who are not true believers. Do you, are you with me on that? There's not one person here. One of the great privileges of being a pastor is that you, sh you, you show me the secrets of your hearts 
you let me see them and you ask me to pray for them and you confess them to me. And so when I look out, it's just so clear that there's not one righteous, not, no, not one. There's none. And so this is our path. You understand, having once fallen under the cross of Jesus Christ, there's no recovery of self-righteousness. There's no recovery of works. There's no recovery of God owing you anything. And if God doesn't owe you anything, your sinful self doesn't, you know, in your marriage with your parents, at no point can righteousness establish you if with God it can't. Do you understand? Because other people are sinners, right? And so you're free to be a sinner saved by grace. And so we stand in this faith and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. One day he will return. And this time it won't be as a humble baby being given birth to in a stable. <laughs> this time it will be in power and glory and every eye will see him. Now, there we are. Will you take the next step with me? Okay? Immediately, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, and not only this. And not only this. Or he's saying, and moving right along. Or he's saying, and cheek by jowl. <laughs> or he's saying, you think that's great? I have something better to tell you. And here's what he says next. Not only this, but we also exalt. Now, you remember, we were already exalting, right? Now, we also exalt in our tribulations. Right? In our tribulations. Now, I will confess to you, I've rarely been through a week of such tribulations as this week. I could maybe count three of them in my life. Right? The reason is that uh, when one of our sin is commented upon across the country, first of all, you look at yourself and you say, how did my sin contribute and cause this sin? Then you go into seeking counsel from people and you write things and you examine yourself and you examine other people and you wonder about this and you wonder about that and you're just and it goes on and on you have meetings of elders we had an elders meeting this week and we had an elders meeting last week and one of the elders meetings with different people attending took 12 hours last week and so just unbelievable tribulations right And then the Bible says what? It says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Another word for tribulations is sufferings. We exalt in them. Now, what is exaltation? What is exalting? The women had a retreat, and the wives of the band lip-synced a song. And during the song, Wendy George and Janet Howell stood down in front, in front of these women as they acted like they were playing their husband's drums and guitars, and, and they just went like this, you know? That's exaltation. They were just 
so caught up in being groupies to the women. And then at the end, Danny had her husband sacked. She got down on her knees and she just went at it. That's exaltation. Exaltation is what you do every place that you have idolatry instead of the true God. Rock concerts. Sandy Patty concerts with all the smoke. Conferences with famous preachers who aren't fat. At the bar, when your bracket does well. At an IU game. When you go up to the board and find your grade and it's good. Okay. That's exalt. I didn't have to explain what exalt was when you were exalting in salvation, did I? But when it says exalt in tribulations, I have to stop and explain what exalt is, right? Because every single one of us is opposed to exalting in tribulations. So I say, it says, it commands us to exalt in tribulations. You say, well, what? I'm supposed to be happy when I get diagnosed with cancer? And so you're immediately like the servant in the garden, you know, has God truly said that you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? So if you're not going to do it, and you get past trying to act as if you don't know the meaning of the word, then you're going to immediately go to the other side and act as if God's a monster who wants you to look at the cancer, look at the tumor, and exult. And of course, that's not what it means. What it means is that in the midst of persecution, you are to exult. It doesn't mean that you're not to cry. It doesn't mean you're not to lament. It doesn't mean that you're not to cry out in pain. It doesn't mean that you're not to grieve. It doesn't mean that you're not to cry. It means that in the midst of your tears and your pain, that you're to exalt. Why? Well, the reason is because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. It's very hard to preach in such a way that you ignore the zitz, and that's not blackheads, the zitz im Leben, okay, which means the situational context within which the sermon is preached. It's one thing about the New Testament is every letter has a zitz im Leben, Every, every single one of the letters has a context. Every single one of the letters, letters is very specific to the particular sins, to the particularities of the people's lives, right? But somehow we've, we've perverted preaching such that the best sermons are the ones that have the least specificity. You ever notice that? Do you ever notice that? Okay. So here we are. It's a week after Ben. Right? Everybody with me? And I tell you the truth, I am more confident of Ben's godliness this week than I was a week ago. Why? Because I've watched him in suffering. And I have seen his perseverance grow. 
I have seen him shaken by the elders calling him to repent. I have seen him be self-forgetful when being accused of evils he hadn't committed. And I was the one doing the accusing. And what I've seen is a humility and a repentance that is to me an indication that the very truth of this verse is right now in front of our eyes rising up. You know time-lapse photography? The good thing about something like Ben did is you don't need time-lapse photography. It all happens right there in front of you. Boom! (laughs) You know? And right in front of us, as we have exalted in our tribulations, we have known that tribulation brings about perseverance, and we have seen perseverance We have seen patience growing. We have seen proven character, and proven character has given birth to hope. And we know that the hope we have through Ben's sin will not disappoint. Listen, it's impossible to talk about this in such a way that the world will understand. You all realize this, right? It's impossible to sing the song the band sang in front of us for the first time this morning, in front of the world, without the world misunderstanding it, right? Okay. But we are the people of God, so we can speak truth to each other, knowing the truth can be abused. And isn't that what all of Scripture is? It's truth that can be abused? Is there any place in Scripture that people will not justify their sin through that specific text? My dad used to say... um, Well, he had two things that he said. One thing was uh, that when people would come up to him and talk to him about it being a shame for a man to have long hair and he had a beard, and this was back in the day when he was the only man for 100 miles that had a beard, you know, and people would quote scripture to him, you know, about rebellion or about long hair, this, that, and the other thing, and he would say, well, you know, the Bible also says, I have come seeking my father's ass, and behold, I have found him. And then there is, Judas went and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. I mean, look, if the purpose of the Christian life is for us to be safe, we should never open a Bible, right? Because we claim that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the minute you start parsing it together and using quotes out of context, I mean, just think of the way that we can command wickedness. And so, yes, in preaching, it is always possible to take what is said in such a way as to be the opposite of what was meant, and then to fault the person for having said what he said. But listen, here's the truth. The truth is, what Ben did is a precious treasure to us. Not because it wasn't sin, but because there was an awful lot behind it that we like to see. Right? Does everybody understand this? We want men to be protectors of the widows and orphans in their distress. And we know Ben, and we know that was his motivation. Uh, Right motivation, wrong action. Can we all say this? Say it with me. Right motivation, wrong action. Okay? And after all, 
he did not hurt anyone, right? And that place is a place that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little babies nestled in their mother's wombs are slaughtered for pay. So the hypocrisy of the world going like this to Ben, while they name their justice building the Charlotte Zitlow Justice Building, and she made money off of the slaughter of those babies, Come on, people, wake up. There's nothing wrong with us confessing Ben's sin publicly. And by doing that, that doesn't invalidate all our absolute opposition to the slaughter of unborn children. Right? The two aren't mutually exclusive. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that it says we exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance or patience and patience proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint. All right? And so you have a progression here. The suffering leads into these things. You can't get these good things without the suffering. That's the nature of sanctification. And so your choice is to either reject sanctification or to give yourself completely to it, knowing that it's a bloody awful mess and that you're not going to come through unscathed. Are you with me? You cannot have perseverance, proven character, hope, and no disappointment unless you go through suffering. That's God's allotted, that's God's intentional, that's God's designed curriculum, and it's core curriculum. It's not an elective. Do you understand? And so, if you were molested by your father, give it up. Give it up. Do you understand me? Give it up. I command you to give it up. You say, well, what do you mean by give it up? I say, well, um, exalt in your tribulation. Now, don't abuse what I said. I'm not saying to exalt in incest. But I am commanding you to, by faith, suffer knowing that that is the only way to get these gifts from God. There's no other way. You cannot bypass the death of your father. You cannot bypass it. That's how he's going to produce godliness in you. Death is awful. Death really is awful. I'm to the point in my life where when there's a new death told to me, I just like, I have muscle memory. I have been through it that often. It is an enemy, all this talk about death is a natural process, so I'm going to take a bunch of morphine so I cannot be here when it happens. Like Woody Allen, I don't mind death, I just mind being there. You know, it's just ridiculous. In postmodern age, is nothing but whistling in the dark. 
And nobody's fooled. There's no way that we can come to holiness except through suffering. Do you understand this? And this week it's Ben. (laughs) Thank you. Ben has given us a great treasure because all of us have had to decide whether we're going to sit on the other side of the potluck or whether we're going to sit next to Ben. Right? So after Ben did what he did, and I, you know, (sighs) right? You all there with me? (sighs) Finally, night falls, and there's some relief. And so what do I do? I go into the family room, and I turn on the television. The great morphine. Right? And what I want is something that will lie to me. And so, I have it. The Masters. It's absolutely perfect. It may not be for you, it is for me. Speak to me. There are these men. You know, and they have like these sort of half formal but half informal blazers on. And the backdrop is gorgeous. It's rhododendron exploding in colors. And I'm colorblind and I can see them. And it's azaleas and it's perfectly trimmed lawn and, and the edging. And I used to do it and it's just perfect. And the caddies are slightly behind, not usurping. And they have the right club. Nah, I was, a, I was a caddy at Medina for about a day, <laughs> you know? And they only show the good shots. That night, all I saw was the good shots. And when he gets to the tee, the crowd's silent. And when he hits his driver, the wind is perfectly aligned with the fairway. And I had to make a choice that night whether I was going to live my life for the masters or for Ben. And there was not one person watching the masters that night who saw the beauty as perfectly as I did. Christians are not oblivious to beauty. We see it perfectly. Because we have faith to see the creator in his creation. And we know that the azaleas, the rhododendron, the civilization, the deference, he must increase and I must decrease. Every single thing we see in nature and in relationships is a testimony to the truth of God. Whereas everybody else has to deny they see that, right? That's why we're able to see the good in what Ben did, you see? Because it is a testimony to God. It's wrong. It's sin right? And so I'm sitting there, and I just feel so seduced by the masters, and Augusta, and I just want to get up out of my seat and drive there. And then I want to hide in the rhododendron. I want to put some gray flannel cologne on. 
And I don't want to be fat anymore. And most of all, I want Ben Carell out of my life. (laughs) And his dad, too, because his dad is crying. And I need to depend on Dave for strength. I don't want him to have to depend on me. People, do you all understand this? It's not just that we don't want to have to suffer. It's that we don't want to see people that are suffering. We don't want to enter into their suffering. Mary Lee and I got very close to a widow in Boulder when we were out there, and her husband, I've told you the story, some of you, her husband was the president of the bank in town, and a, a moneymaker for charities in town was that they had just found a town dump from you know, the old gold mining days, and so they had sold off parcels of the town dump for people to excavate. So this man was down excavating his particular parcel and it caved in and on the daily camera they put a picture of his head sticking up out of the ground with him dead. I didn't see it, but that's what I was told. That was her husband. And Jerry Trent was one of the most beautiful women I've ever known in in my life. She She was just, her spirit and... Everything about her was beautiful. We have a couple treasured uh, little paperweight and some milk glass and then a, a jar made of cobalt glass that were her priceless possessions that she gave to us when we left town. Our hearts were bonded together. And Jerry said that when her husband died, that everybody in her church treated her like a pariah. That everybody looked away as if it was an accident with a body covered by a sheet that everybody wanted nothing to do with her. And why? Well, we're very afraid of suffering being contagious. And so we try to avoid it. But the fact is that God has told us here, not only can we not avoid it, but that it's core curriculum for sanctification and that we are to exalt in it. And this is not just the suffering that you have, this is the suffering of our congregation. There is to be, Lex Walesa, you remember him? There is to be solidarity among Christians in their suffering. We are to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And here we have a command to rejoice, and the opportunity that we're to rejoice in is the opportunity of suffering. And we are commanded to rejoice. So this isn't just a command for you with cancer, for you with death, for you with uh, unrequited love. This is a command for you with all the other sinners that are sitting all over you. Nathan is right. Get over it. Did we really think Ben was the one person in this church who was perfect? Think of the relief that Allie has now. I mean, I'm all for it. Just I wouldn't doubt. Ben loves his sister so much, I think that's why he did it. Remember how Bobby Knight used to be so nasty so nobody would notice his players and they'd be free to play? You know, it's just an idea. I'm floating it out there, you know. It's up to Paul, <laughs> you know. Who knows? I'm probably crazy, you know. You sneaky man, you. 
<laughs> but I'll bet Allie is happy that the attention is not on her. Oh, she's not. Where is she? Oh, she's in the room. She's very happy she's in the room. <laughs> now, one last thing and we're done. We're to exalt, right? And you know what exaltation is. And at the end of the text, what does it say? And it's so sweet. At the end of the text, it says, and hope does not disappoint because purpose because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit was given to us. Now, why is that put in there? The reason it's put in there is that the persecutions and the sufferings are proof of the love of God. They are what we cling to when we don't believe that we're saved. Because the Bible tells us those, come on, Those whom he loves, he chastens. I pity the other churches in town. Think of the unbelievable treasure that they escaped this week. But boy, (laughs) we sure got it. Now, you might think I'm twisted to laugh about this, but that's how Baileys respond to suffering. And I'm going to defend it by telling you that one of those two fat journalists, Chesterton or Muggeridge, who became a Christian, says that Christians are always the greatest humorists because Christians are the ones that by faith are actually able to look at what God intended and what actually exists and to engage the disparity between the two. And then to make jokes. And I think jokes are, 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 are at least a midway point on the path to exaltation. Right? Right? And that's why, he says, there will be neither clothing nor jokes in heaven. You understand that now, don't you? Because there's no need to hide our bodies and there's no need to mediate the tension. Because the Lamb is, is our Son. And there are no tears. There's no sin. There's no worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. Won't that be a relief when IU campus is devoid of idolatry? <laughs> when there are no, no Nobels. And we don't have to worry about it. We're simply content to be a son of God. Women too. Okay, let's come to the table and eat.